We're in Genesis chapter 36. Genesis chapter 36. Now, you will notice there are a lot of names. A lot of names. And um, I'm not going to read it all. But before we get to the text, I want to pray. And uh, I want to invite you to be very particular in your prayers before the Lord as I lead us. Uh, we need God's help. I need God's help with this text. And you need God's help to hear what he has to say to you this morning. So let's turn to him. Father in heaven, this word that lies open before us is your word. You breathed it out by your spirit. It's living and it's active. And we know it's for us. It's to make us wise to salvation. It's to help us understand your character. It's to teach us what obedience looks like. God, I'm asking in a particular way today. I suppose it's what I ask every time I preach that you, by your Spirit, would speak to our hearts, that you would teach us the things that we do not know, that you would make us the thing that we are not but should be, and that you would ultimately bring glory to your own Son, our Savior Jesus, in whose name we pray this. Amen. Well, again, Genesis chapter 36, right through the end of the chapter, through uh, verse 1 of chapter 37. That's the section we're looking at this morning. So keep your Bible open. I'll read some of it in a moment. But I was thinking as uh, seeking to illustrate this in opening, uh, of course, we all know that the tents are going to be going up in a couple of weeks, and, and soon the night skies will be lit up and our eardrums assaulted in celebration of the founding of this nation. It's something we do every single year. When we moved here from Canada, we were absolutely astounded at how much people burned up in one night in terms of value. I mean, I, you know, I, and I you know, thought I was very generous with my children going to the firework tent saying, here's $10, knock yourself out. <laughs> Why, well, finding out that people spend thousands. Well, we know what this is like. It's, it's a big deal, right? Most of you know the story of this nation. The, story, the people who started it had an ideal. They shared an ideal. The story includes notable persons, Washington, Hamilton, Franklin, Adams times two, Jefferson, Madison, Jay. I will grant that some of those founding ideals have been eroded and, and perhaps even challenged over time. There is still acknowledgement of certain self-evident truths that all men are created equal right? Endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights. Now, it's an important story. It's certainly worth remembering, and it's worth celebrating. But I'm not sure that the first settlers to the, the shores of this continent, mostly British loyal subjects, thought that they were building a nation. Certainly what we've become is, is owing to divine Providence, that was certainly the decisive factor as we look back on the founding of this nation. 
Now, as we turn our attention to the text before us, and in fact, all of Genesis where we've been spending time over these last months, with the founding of Israel and other nations beginning with Abraham, God was certainly providentially at work. But it started, unlike America, unlike any other nation in the world, the nations that we see depicted in the scriptures here started with a divine pronouncement. A divine pronouncement. Now, we were introduced to Abraham and God's covenant with him to bless him, to make him the father of not just one nation, but nations. That was back in Genesis chapter 12. And as we've been moving through Genesis, the story of Abraham and Isaac and his covenant family, that's been unfolding before us. And now we get here to chapter 36. Moses, the author, he takes a slight detour to tell us about the generations of Esau. The generations of Esau. Now, as I introduced this this morning, the section is comprised mostly of names and a couple of locations. Like I said, I'm not going to read all of it. I'll refer to each section, but I want, to, I want you to pay attention just to the opening eight verses. Hear God's word. Chapter 36, beginning in verse 1. These are the generations of Esau, that is, Edom. Esau took wives from the Canaanites, Ada, the daughter of Elon the Hittite, Aholabama, the daughter of Anna, the daughter of Zibion the Hivite, Basmeth, Ishmael's daughter, the sister of Nebaioth, and Ada bore to Esau, Eliphaz, Basmeth bore Reuel, and Olabama bore Jeush, Jalem, and Korah. These are the sons of Esau who were born to him in the land of Canaan. Then Esau took his wives, his sons, his daughters, and all the members of his household, his livestock, all his beasts, all his property, all that he had acquired in the land of Canaan. He went into a land away from his brother Jacob, for their possessions were too great for them to dwell together. The land of their sojournings could not support them because of their livestock. So Esau settled in the hill country of Seir. Esau is Edom. Now these first eight verses, understandably, we look at it, the, the section is about Esau, but I think it reveals something more. It reveals the fulfillment of God's promise to Abraham. It, it, fulfill, it reveals the fulfillment of God's promise to Isaac. It reveals the fulfillment of God's promise to Jacob, and I'll show you where that is in a few moments. Now, like I said, I'm not going to read the, 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 all of the next section, but verses 9 through 18, if you follow me, again, it's important that you have your Bibles open before you. Verses 9 through 18 begins, These are the generations of Esau, the father of the Edomites, in the hill country of Seir. These are the names of Esau's sons. Now, if you're looking through that list, verses 9 through 18, you'll see that Amalek is in the list. That it, the Amalekites become uh, an enemy of Israel later on. Verses 15 through 19, we're told these are the chiefs of the sons of Esau. And I counted, I believe, 13 tribal heads of Edom. Skipping down to verse 20 through 30, begins, these are the sons of Seir, the Horite, the inhabitants, the inhabitants of the land. So this section is about Edom's settlement 
and it relates to his acquisition of the land called Seir. And it's initially through intermarriage with the Horites. Verses 31 through 43. These are the kings who reigned in the land of Edom before any king reigned over the Israelites. And this section highlights the government of Edom. And finally, the beginning of the next chapter, which I, I think is really attached to this section. Chapter 37, verse 1. Jacob, so now we're told about Esau. He's in Seir, the Edomites. Jacob lived in the land of his father's sojournings, the land of Canaan. Now, as I read this over and over and over, and I agonized over it, I thought, why? Why did Moses include these details about Esau. Now I want to pause here. This is the Word of God. It is living and active as I prayed. And it is for us. So we want to understand, and I will do my best to make some connections here in application. So this is why I asked you, pray. Pray that God would give us insight here. So I asked the question, why did Moses include these details about Esau? Well, the setting here for the Israelites, they're about to cross the Jordan and to possess the land of Canaan, the land that was promised to Abraham through Isaac and Jacob and all of the descendants. They're about to possess that land. At the same time, it was important for these Israelites to understand their shared history with some of the nations surrounding them. Now, the Israelites had been promised a particular blessing. Now that blessing would eventually be physical. They're about to possess the land. And it would, as it would later be described, a land flowing with milk and honey, a prosperous land, a fruitful land. They were about to possess that land. They were about to take over homes that they did not build. They, were, they would be acquiring fields that they did not plant. None of it was their own doing. God was gifting them a land by taking it away from some wicked Canaanite tribes. They'd been promised a particular blessing, and it was certainly physical in terms of land and possessions, but it was more than that. It was uniquely spiritual and a relational blessing. As we would discover later on, when the Israelites are rescued from slavery in Egypt, the Lord tells them, I will be your God. You will be my people. It was a special relationship. And it was that spiritual blessing and that relational blessing for which Israel would serve ultimately as a conduit of that same blessing to the nations. That conduit for that blessing was their faith. They were trusting in the promises of God. Now, as we get back to Esau, verse 1 says, these are the generations of Esau. And just so we understand what's, what's going on here, the, the generations, you see that word generations, the, the Hebrew word is toledot. And that could be translated certainly generations, offspring. These are the ones who follow. But there are other nuances to the, to, the, to the way this could be translated. It could be translated as an account. This is the account of Esau or the story of Esau. It certainly includes people, but, but it includes circumstances. This is the story, the account of Esau. In chapter 37 to Moses, the author, he's going to turn back to the Toledat, the story 
of Jacob. But for now, we're parked on, on Esau. Now, unlike the story of Abraham and Isaac, the only details provided here in the text are the who and the where. And the facts given in this section do not lead the reader to any sort of moral judgment. But what is evident, as we can see, is that the account of Esau is the story of a significant and prosperous people. And that was the Lord's doing. Now again, the Israelites about to cross the Jordan to possess the land of Canaan, they were aware of the Edomites, but they saw them as enemies. And in this section, I believe Moses wants to leave them no confusion about the origin of these people, these Edomites. We're told four times in this chapter, verses 1, 8, 9, and 43, others are implied, that Esau is the father of the Edomites. Esau is the twin brother of their patriarch, Jacob. So I want to make some points from this text. It's my custom to do so. The first observation that we can make from this text is that is this. God kept his promise. God kept his promise. The promise was given to Abraham and affirmed to Isaac and Jacob. Here's what the Lord told Abraham back in Genesis chapter 22. I will surely bless you and I will multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven and as the sand that is on the seashore. But these descendants would not just be one nation, but many. Genesis 17, I will make you, this is the Lord said to Abram, I will make you exceedingly fruitful, and I will make you into nations, and kings shall come from you. In our text, the account of Esau is the record of a specific promise to Abraham fulfilled. Verse 31 of our text these are the kings who reigned in the land of Edom before any king reigned over the Israelites. These are the kings who reigned in the land of Edom. Now, the Israelites are keenly aware that they have no king. They don't have this level of organization yet as a people. They're wandering, they've been wandering around the wilderness for, for 40 years. They're a hodgepodge of, of tribes. And they know one thing. God rescued them. But they're looking at Edom going, well, they're put together. They got space. They got organization. They got kings. Well, that was a fulfillment of the promise made to Abraham. And in writing this, of course, Moses anticipates Israel's future kings. Well, God fulfilled his promise as well to Isaac. To Isaac. When Rebekah was pregnant, there was much turmoil in her womb. Perhaps you remember the story. She inquired of the Lord. The Lord revealed to her that she would bear twins. And here's what she was told. Two nations are in your womb. Two peoples from within you shall be divided. The one shall be stronger than the other. The older shall serve the younger. Now back in, in Genesis 25, 27, maybe you'll recall that, that Jacob and Esau had become enemies, right? And that's owing, of course, to Jacob's trickery and his deceit. They were relationally divided. But here in chapter 36, though Jacob and Esau have likely reconciled, they now become physically divided. Verse 6 tells us that Esau, of our text, Esau went into a land away from his brother Jacob. Promised to Isaac, fulfilled. Two nations divided. 
And then the promise to Jacob fulfilled. The promise of the land of Canaan was to Abraham. Then Isaac, but not Ishmael. It was then through Isaac to Jacob, not Esau. That's important. So to ensure that the nation emerging from Esau would not ultimately settle there in Canaan, where they were in Hebron, that they wouldn't settle there, the Lord prospered Esau to the point that he felt he needed to have a separation from his mother. We, we can't have our herds together. We, we've, there's too much for this land to bear both of us. He needed space away from his brother. Verse 7 says that their possessions were too great for them to dwell together. The land of their sojournings could not support them. And this is the Lord's doing. Jacob didn't have to do anything. He knew the promise was for him and his offspring. He knew the promise was not for Esau. He didn't have to push Esau out. He didn't have to battle with him. He didn't have to play the I've got my father's blessing card. Esau simply wanted more space. And so the Lord provided for Esau an alternative homeland so that Jacob's future offspring would not have to come back and obliterate his brother's offspring. This was the Lord's doing. And it was just as the Lord promised to Jacob when the Lord appeared to him. The Lord told Jacob, the land that I gave Abraham, gave to Abraham and Isaac, I will give to you. And I will give the land to your offspring after you. Again, not Esau's. The Lord moved him out. Two nations divided. And that was the application, perhaps, for the Israelites as we think about this. Something to think about. Even though Esau was not the direct beneficiary of these, sorry, even though Esau was the direct beneficiary of these promises, the promises were not made to him. They were not promises to him. They were promises to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Esau was a godless man who fathered a godless nation. And Esau prospered in spite of all of that. But he prospered for God's own purposes. And again, reflecting on the, the comparisons that, that the Israelites would likely have made in their minds. We are of Jacob. We are Israelites. And there's Edom, the other brother. Look at how he is prospering. And we've been wandering around this wilderness for 40 years. It might have appeared to them to be unjust on God's part. Why would God allow these wicked people to prosper and allow his own people to suffer? Now, I'm not answering the question. I'm just simply posing it. That certainly would have been on their mind. But what they needed to learn was this was God's doing, and his purposes exceeded what they could have seen in the moment. Now, as we think about what this means for us today, as a child of God, you may wonder why God blesses one nation and not another. And I think Christians, through the founding of this nation, have, I believe, have belie I believe mistakenly connected the prosperity of the United States of America with some sort of spiritual benefit. We have indeed been blessed. But I want to caution you 
America is not a theocracy. Jesus is not going to return and celebrate our president at the time. (laughs) This nation, like every other nation on the earth, will be subjected and subdued before him. And we get the benefit of living under this prosperity. And why us and not some countries in Africa or South America or Far East Asia, India? Why have we enjoyed this prosperity? Well, we can come up with a lot of reasons that are practical explanations, but at the end of the day, God has prospered us not because we've been deserving, but for his own purposes. And we'll figure it out in the grand scheme of things at the end of time. But I wonder about this as well in terms of Esau. Maybe Esau prospered simply to prove that God is faithful in keeping his promises. Perhaps it was so that God might display that There is something more than a physical heritage as a reason for his eternal favor. Bringing these two brothers into view, the Apostle Paul wrote in Romans chapter 9. Again, to highlight that just simply being descended from Abraham, which is both Isaac and Jacob, was not the benefit. There was something more. Paul writes in Romans 9, about these things, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls. She was told, the mother of the twins, the older will serve the younger. As it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. God shows mercy to whom he shows mercy. The nation of your heritage is not ultimately what decides whether you're in the kingdom of God. It is God's electing grace and your response of faith. Well, secondly, I want to look at a possession for Esau, a possession for Esau. Since the beginning of time, the, the, the advance of certain people groups and the demise of others has involved conquest and subjugation. That's just history. You know this, before Europeans arrived in these shores, the indigenous tribes sometimes lived at peace with one another and sometimes they conquered and obliterated one another. That's history. Spanish and British and French explorers came to these shores to exploit the resources here. They were eventually followed by people who wanted to settle here. And sometimes it was peaceful coexistence with the indigenous people. But there was a lot of conquering and subjugation in that westward push. And what was done by previous generations is considered immoral today. And we just have to think of Russia's aggression towards Ukraine. There's this wholesale sense of condemnation for Russia doing what they're doing. But it's a fact of history that the settling of this nation, the settling of any nation on the earth happened apart from God choosing and even when God chose through conquering and subjugation. It doesn't defend the sinful actions of people. It's just history. And in the providential purposes of God, he's used acts of human evil to do greater things on the other side. 
Now, I'm not denigrating the United States of America. The ideals of this nation are the best on the planet. I, I think that. And I think it's a unique blessing. But it doesn't mean there wasn't evil in the, in the settling of this nation. That's just the story of history. So the descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, they were given a possession in the land of the Canaanites. They would have to conquer. By God's decree, they would have to conquer. But the Lord also determined to give a possession to Esau. And I want you to see in the providence of God how that happened. Again, as I stared at this text, as I read so much on this, um, I, I saw how this came to be. Here's what happened. And I, be I believe it began with Esau's wives. So how did Esau end up in Seir? Now I'm going to acknowledge right at the outset here, if you read your Bible closely, there are some discrepancies between Genesis 26 and 28, the description of Esau and his wives, and the account of Esau's wives here in Genesis 36. We can't, can't solve that problem. I'd love to have discussion with some of you about that. But I want to suffice it to say that Esau's initial connection to Seir was through his wives. It is quite likely that Hittites, Hivites, they're the same Canaanite tribe. Some of them migrated to the region on the east side of the Gulf of Aqaba. Now, if you don't know where that is, uh, for reference, the Red Sea that separates the African continent from modern-day Saudi Arabia. And those of you who have been deployed to uh, Djibouti, you know this area, right? The Red Sea stretches from the Arabian Sea at the south almost to the Mediterranean Sea to the north. And there are two smaller bays that jut out from the northern end of the Red Sea. They look like antennae on, a, on an insect. The western bay is called the Gulf of Suez. Today, a canal connects that gulf up to the Mediterranean Sea. The eastern bay is called the Gulf of Aqaba. That region was mountainous with caves. That the, the region living there, the, the people living there, as our text describes, were Horites. means cave dweller. Some of the biblical con commentators refer to them as troglodytes. I had never seen that in a biblical commentary. They were troglodytes. So going back to, to, to verse 2, we're told that Esau took wives from the Canaanites. This is while he was living in, in um, Hebron, which is in the land of Canaan. Took Wives from the Canaanites, Ada, the daughter of Elon, the Hittite, Aholabama, the daughter of Anna, the daughter of Zibion, the Hivite, and Bezmath, Ishmael's daughter, the sister of Nebaioth. Again, presumably he took these wives while still dwelling in Hebron before he separated from Jacob. Then when Esau and Jacob separated, in verse 8 we read, so Esau settled in the hill country of, sorry, in the hill country of Seir. Esau is Edom. Why there? Why there? If we look at verses 9 through 19, it lists the sons born to Esau after he settled in Seir. Now, if we look at verse 9, the generations of Esau, the father of the Edomites, in the hill country of Seir. Okay, we see that, that section. Verses 9 through 19 describes Esau's descendants in that section. Now, in, if you're looking at your Bibles, go down to verse 20. It describes the people who occupied that land prior to Esau settling there, named after one seer, who was a Horite. In this section, we see the overlap between the Horites and then Esau's family. For example, just give you one or two, I should say. 
In the list of the sons of Seir, Esau's wife, Oholibamah, is listed as a Horite daughter. Timnah, also identified in verse 24, she was a concubine of Esau's son, Eliphaz, back in verse 12. Now, we're not told how, how Esau's people came to, dominant, to be dominant in that region. We're not told. But presumably, and this is my take, that it began with intermarriage. But at some point in time, it became hostile. And we find this out in Deuteronomy 2.12. The Horites, so this is Moses reflecting on the history now. They're, they're closer to possessing the land of Canaan. The Horites also lived in Seir formerly, but the people of Esau dispossessed them and destroyed them from before them and settled in their place. And here's where he makes the comparison. As Israel did to the land of their possession, which the Lord gave to them. Don't miss that comparison between Israel and Edom, the people of Esau. God, as God gave the Israelites a possession in Canaan, God also gave the Edomites a possession east of Canaan in Seir, the land formerly occupied by the Horites. Now, fast forward in the history. After the Israelites were delivered from slavery in Egypt, the Lord warned them. Deuteronomy 2. You're about to pass through the territory of your brothers, the people of Esau, who live in Seir, and they will be afraid of you. So be very careful. Do not contend with them, for I will not give you any of their land. No, not so much as for the sole of the foot to tread on, because I have given Mount Seir to Esau as a possession. They possessed Mount Seir because the Lord gave it to Esau. Now, even though the Edomites were, were hostile to Israel, as the Israelites were attempting to make their way to Canaan, the Lord commanded them. The Lord commanded them, You shall not abhor an Edomite, for he is your brother. Now, and a lot of detail there. Esau's possession of that area, Seir, Mount Seir, that would ultimately be temporary. And that hostility between the Edomites and the Israelites and vice versa, that continued for many generations. And, and later prophets would tell of Edom's direct humbling by the hand of the Lord, Obadiah, 121. Saviors shall go up to Mount Zion to rule Mount Esau, and the kingdom shall be the Lord's. In Malachi, through the prophet Malachi, the Lord speaking to Israel, I have loved you, says the Lord, but you say, how have you loved us? And then he gives an illustration. Is Esau not Jacob's brother, declares the Lord? There's this family relationship. I've loved you. What's the proof? Is Esau not Jacob's brother? Yet I have loved Jacob, but Esau I have hated. I have laid waste his hill country and left his heritage to jackals of the desert. So God sets Edom in place and God takes him down. For his own purposes, God raises up kingdoms and he brings them down in his own time. Just as it was revealed to Nebuchadnezzar, 
The Most High rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he will. That's how it works. And even though, even though the Edomites were hostile to the Israelites, the brother of Jacob, Esau, was hostile. His descendants were hostile to the, to the descendants of Jacob. They were told not to despise them. Now, as believers today, there may be, so we, we rightly think of ourselves as the people of God, made the people of God through faith in Jesus. We have, we have seen his, his gift of salvation offered to us in the crucified Son of God. Sins forgiven at the cross. Jesus raised on the third day to absolutely guarantee Guarantee eternal life, bodily eternal life with him forever. That's, that's a certainty. And we rightly consider us, ourselves today the people of God. Not because we deserve it or earn it, but simply because of God's grace towards us. And seeing ourselves having this identity as the people of God, it would be very tempting to despise those who despise us. Like the Edomites despised the Israelites but we are not to despise them. God will pro prosper them. God will take them down. Our role in the world is to simply represent Christ. Do we? Or do we find ourselves, we find we are tempted to take the place of God and be the judger of the nations around us? I'm not suggesting, brothers and sisters, we cannot be discerning about the sins of the world around us. I'm not saying that. But our primary role here in the world as the people of God is not to be a, a pronouncement of judgment on the nations, but a pronouncement of hope in the Lord Jesus Christ. Which brings me to my final observation, which really was not so much taken from the text, but, but really from my understanding of the totality of the witness of Scripture, and this is simply eternal blessings. Eternal blessings. Now, we know the difference between what is temporal and what is eternal. And I was just thinking, uh, you know, as, I, as I've had occasion to get a newer car, you know, you, you get rid of the old one, you get something newer, maybe not a brand new car, but something that's new to you. You wash it and vacuum it out and... But you know, there's that day when you park it in the parking lot at the grocery store and somebody opens their door and boom, there's a big ding in it. And then after months and years, the brakes go. Then you see that rust around the fender well. And at some time, your, your attitude towards it is like, well, it's a ride. It's not that special anymore. But we know. Things that are beautiful at one time eventually break down. And all we have to do, brothers and sisters, is look at ourselves in the mirror. When you were 20 years old and you stood in front of the mirror, you felt all vital. But then you get to be a little older and you start things, things start to sag. And it's a little harder. It's taking a walk. brings you pain. <laughs> There's a temporariness to this. And we understand the difference between temporal blessings and eternal blessings. The descendants of Esau were on the receiving end of God's provision. They, they, they had organization, they had a, a nation, they had a land. It all looked great. They were godless people, but hey, it looked good. But that wouldn't last. That wouldn't last. In fact, even before we get to the end of the Pentateuch, when 
Balak, one of the enemy of the Israelites, seeing these, these people marching through the territory, he hires this, this pagan seer, Balaam, to bring a curse upon the Israelites. But interestingly, this Balaam, named after a false god, Baal, he can only pronounce what the Lord permitted, and this is what he said. A star shall come out of Jacob, and a scepter shall rise out of Israel. It shall crush the, head of, the forehead of Moab and break down all the sons of Sheph. Edom shall be dispossessed. Seir also, his enemies, shall be dispossessed. Israel is doing valiantly. And one from Jacob shall exercise dominion and destroy the survivors of cities. That happened. Edom as a nation is no more. So is there any significance for us today that Edom as a nation is no more? In the pronouncement against Edom, the Lord revealed a star to come out of Jacob, a scepter rising out of Israel. The star, that ruling scepter, you know it. That is Jesus. I take it that the account of Esau is representative of God's blessing to the nations. Through the prophet Amos, the Lord promised to restore David to his former glory, King David. Prophetic word. In that day, I will raise up the booth of David that is fallen. So Israel's well past their glory days of David. This word comes to them. I will raise up the booth of David that has fallen and repair its breaches and raise up its ruins and rebuild it as in the days of old. And David was representative of the people of God at the, at the height of their glory. And that glory would be returned to the people of God through David's offspring, the scepter, the star, the anointed one, the offspring of David, the God-man, Jesus Christ. And part of that glory would be that they may possess the remnant of Edom and that all the nations who are called by my name, declares the Lord who does this. Note that language. All the nations who are called by my name. You see, Edom, well, that's, that's us. That's us. When Paul and Barnabas testify back to the Jerusalem church how, how the Gentiles are responding to the gospel message, I mean, they initially thought, well, this is just for the Jews. But no, the Lord told Paul, you're going to bring this message to the Gentiles and their kings. That was startling to, to the Jerusalem elders. It's like, what? You mean it's not just, not just for us? And, and here's how they recounted and, and tied in what the prophet Amos said. Remember what Amos said, that they may possess the remnant of Edom and all the nations who are called by my name, declares the Lord. Paul and Barnabas are testifying to how the Gentiles responded to the gospel. And they recounted the prophetic word through Amos. This is what it says in Acts 15. After this I will return. Same words, quoted right out of Amos. And I will rebuild the tents of David that has fallen, and I will rebuild its ruins, and I will restore it. Hear the word change. 
that the remnant of mankind may seek the Lord and all the Gentiles who are called by my name, says the Lord, who makes these things known from of old. Israel as a theocratic nation is no more. The only similarity between Israel of today and the nation established by God is in the land of Canaan, is that they occupy some of the same real estate. But what remains, what remains today is the relational and spiritual blessings that were poured out by God. These are not bounded by any geopolitical, uh, geopolitical border. Because of Christ, because of the blessing that came through Israel, through the star rising out of Jacob, through the scepter out of Israel, through the greater son of King David, through Jesus, the son of God. We, who belong to the nations, have been redeemed and brought near as the people of God today. And there is coming a day when Jesus will return to rule and reign forever. So what do we do in the meantime? And we look back in the history of this story what sense does it make that we're told about Esau and his descendants? Well, the sense that it makes is that God keeps his promises. He raises kingdoms, he brings them down. And his goal throughout of the entirety of human history is to reveal the very Son of God in whom all the nations would find their identity. All the peoples of all the nations would find their identity. And there is coming a day when the Lord Jesus will return. And irrespective of who you've been born to or whether Jew or Gentile, it matters not. Because at that time when Jesus returns, as it tells us in Revelation, the kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. And we look forward to that day. So in the meantime, There are kingdoms in this world, America, Russia, Ukraine, Canada, tiny kingdom, all sorts of countries. Who we belong to is of far less importance, nationally speaking, than who we belong to eternally. And if you're in Christ today, irrespective of your nationality. You can see a Christian from Russia. Yeah, from Russia. And you can agree that this world, this isn't our home. Russia may rise and fall. America may rise and fall. But what will remain forever is the kingdom of our Lord. He will reign forever. So in the meantime, we don't as Jesus said in Matthew, do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth. Don't put your confidence in things on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. Rather, what we're to do is lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. The treasure in heaven is everything that we do with our lives to invest, to put our confidence in, to put our hope in the return of our Lord Jesus Christ whose kingdom will never end. I pray that that's where you stand this morning. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we are grateful that you, that you have spoken uh, your word.
And while um, the details of your word are sometimes challenging and the meaning is sometimes difficult to discern, we know that you have spoken your word for our good and we pray. We pray that whatever, whatever you have for us in terms of our own confidence, in terms of our, the way in which we think of how we order our lives, God, that we would see ourselves primarily as people belonging to you because we have trusted in Christ. So, Father, we pray, strengthen us to live in this world as sojourners who are making our way to a promised land, not the land of Canaan, but the land, the eternal land, where everyone acknowledges that Jesus Christ is King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Pray it all in Jesus' name. Amen.